In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. O Lord God, be with us during this hour of prayer. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Forgive us our sins, O Lord, and through your Son, make us worthy to stand in your courts. Amen. Our Passion reading is the account of the mob outside of Pilate's court. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who is misleading the people. Look, I have examined him before you. I have found no basis for a charge against this man regarding the things of which you accuse him. Herod did not either, because he sent him back to us. See, he has done nothing worthy of death so I will punish him and then release him. At the time of the feast, the governor had a custom to release one prisoner to the crowd, whomever they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner named Barabbas, who had been thrown in prison for a rebellion in the city and for murder. The crowd came up and began to ask him to do what he usually did for them. So when they were assembled, Pilate said to them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews to you? Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate, in fact, knew that they had handed Jesus over to him because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent him a message. She said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, since I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus put to death. The governor asked them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They all shouted together with one voice, Take him away. Release Barabbas to us. Pilate said to them, Then what do you want me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Crucify him. But the governor said, Why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting even louder, Crucify him. Pilate addressed them again because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! He said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no grounds for sentencing him to death, so I will whip him and release him. But they kept pressuring him with loud shouts, demanding that he be crucified, and their voices were overwhelming. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, 
but and that instead it was turning into a riot, he decided that what they demanded would be done. He took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this righteous man's blood. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him fly. Here ends the Passion reading. We all like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his wounds we are healed. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our sermon text is recorded in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 27th chapter. Let us hear verses 22 through 26 in Jesus' name. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Crucify him. But the governor said, Why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting even louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, and that instead it was turning into a riot, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this righteous man's blood. It is your responsibility. And all the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Dear fellow redeemed, in the 2004 film, The Passion of the Christ, all the dialogue is in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Latin with English subtitles throughout. However, there was one line spoken without subtitles, the words of the mob in Pilate's court, let his blood be on us and on our children. How horribly wicked people throughout the ages have mismused this verse and statement. It's seeking to fulfill this curse that the crowd called down, not only on themselves, but on their children's children. Many have been the false Christians and the rabid pagans who felt that any misdeed done against the people of Israel was justified by this one passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Let his blood be on us and on our children. How could the people in Pilate's court have said such a thing? How could they have called down an everlasting blood guilt upon themselves? The answer is simple. They did not believe they were. They were convinced that the guilt was not theirs, but the Nazarene carpenters, who had dared to pretend to be their Messiah. When they saw him there, his appearance so disfigured beyond that of any man in his form marred beyond human likeness, wearing a crown of thorns in Roman mockery, they all believed that they had been cheated and taken in by a wicked fraud who deserved everything that the Romans could dish out, 
their Palm Sunday hopes that this king would reestablish David's throne and make them independent from Rome were dashed. They did not believe Jesus was who he claimed to be, and they didn't want the salvation he came to bring. Have we ever been tempted to stray close to the edges of that unholy crowd? Are we ever tempted to demand something from God that he never promised or to reject that which his son died to offer? If so, then we must pray. Father, forgive us when we despise your great salvation. Let his blood be on us and on our children. How could they demand the most horrible and painful death for the man that they had hailed as the son of David and the promised king of Israel? From the books of Moses through the last prophet Malachi, the coming of the promised Savior was clearly set forth for Israel. They foretold the place where he would born, would, was to be born. They spoke of the wonders he would bring about. They spoke of triumph after suffering, of an eternal crown that would adorn the head of the heir of the great King David. And the Israelites wanted this, but not quite in the same way the writers of the Old Testament had meant it. They had the desire for salvation, but not the same salvation that was promised in the words of the prophets. The Israelites were under the thumb of an occupying power. They were a conquered people in a backwater province of the Roman Empire. That was a blow to their national pride. It was a slap in the face to their religious prestige as the chosen people of God. A savior from sin and death could wait. The Israelites wanted a savior from Rome. So the popular imagination had woven together a grand fantasy about the coming days of King Messiah. He would come floating out of the clouds over Jerusalem and slowly and majestically descend into the courts of the great temple. He would raise his voice and armies would flock to his call to bring vengeance upon the Romans and upon all the enemies of the Jews. The King Messiah would rule all the known world. Jerusalem would become the greatest city in the world, and all people would finally acknowledge the greatness of the people of Israel and of their glorious Messiah King. For a while, it seemed that Jesus of Nazareth truly fit the bill of the Messiah. Many people cheered, the, uh, echoed the sentiments of the Pharisee Nicodemus uttered in the dark of night. No one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. People kept talking about how no one could doubt that this was the Messiah. When the Christ comes, they asked, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Remember how after the feeding of the 5,000, they were ready to force Jesus to become their Messiah King. 
They had been so enthusiastic that Jesus had to take off into the hills and hide himself from them. The day after, uh, they had searched all over for him, almost drooling at the thought that the days of the Messiah were at hand. On Palm Sunday, all the talk was of the resurrection of Lazarus and all the many other signs and wonders of Jesus. Then they saw him riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, in fulfillment of the words of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then the cloaks came off to be laid before his feet. Palms were cut and strewn in his path. Then the shouts of Hosanna to the son of David rang out. And then came Friday. Everyone assembled in the courtyard outside the Roman Praetorium. Then Pilate brought Jesus out and said, Here is the man. And what did the people see? A man beaten and scourged and bleeding. He hardly had the strength to stand. They had wrapped him in a red legionnaire's cloak as a royal robe and had woven a crown of thorns to put on his head. The Romans were laughing at him and threw him at all Israel. Here's your king. Here's your Messiah. Here's the man who is going to conquer Rome. By Rome, he is conquered. When the crowd saw him crowned with thorns and whipped bloody, they got angry. In their eyes, he had broken his promise. To them, he was no Messiah at all because he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. The cries of Hosanna turned so quickly into shouts of crucify. Not that we would ever join in such shouts. No, indeed. Our sin of such disloyalty doesn't end in a murderous rage, but we can fall into the trap of thinking he has reneged on promises he never actually made to us. Perhaps we won't so blatantly reject the salvation of our souls. After all, many of us have been brought up on that thought from little on. We know our Bible stories, our catechisms, our creeds. We know what Lent and Good Friday are all about. But sometimes Christians get the idea that we should expect more out of Jesus in this life. Salvation will be of utmost importance to us on the day we die. But for now, perhaps, we ought to expect more out of our Savior than just that. We may buy into the idea that since we are Christians, no really bad thing should happen to us. We begin to think that since we are God's children by faith, it isn't right that unbelievers often have greater blessings on earth than we have. And sitting here in church, we can see right through this temptation. And we remember the many passages in the Bible where we are reminded that the Lord disciplines those he loves. 
and uses even hardships to bring about uh, some good for us. But we aren't always here sitting in church, are we? And when things are getting rough for us, the troubles are mounting up, we pray and pray and things still don't seem to get better. Then we look around and see the unbelievers in this world doing quite comfortably and something in us begins to wonder. Something unbelievably horrible happens to us. And like Job of old, we begin to complain that God is being unfair and not keeping promise to, promises to us that he never actually made. And we begin to ask why he lets us get so sick and why he lets us have all these money troubles. Why do we have trouble making friends? Why are we the ones who are depressed? Why are we the ones who can't seem to get on top in life? Why can't God make things a little easier for us? A poison has attacked our faith. What he came to bring us, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and salvation, suddenly seems less important than those things we feel he ought to be giving us in this world. And if we listen closely, we can hear the far-off cries of anger and rejection from the wrathful mob that we are getting all too close to. God keep us from such soul-destroying foolishness. And then we need to beg a great blessing from our Father in heaven. Father, fix our eyes on the needs of our souls. Of course, we know that the concerns of our earthly lives are important. God himself invited us in the letter of St. Peter to cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. He has indeed promised to be with us always, even through the worst that could happen to us, even to the end of the world. But let us not repeat the error of the crowd in Jerusalem. Let us not make up scenarios for ourselves and then blame God if he decides that our lives are to take darker paths. Don't get angry with God because he doesn't keep promises that you have put into his mouth. Learn to do what the Bible says and wait patiently for the Lord. No things in this life are not going to be a rose garden. Hasn't Jesus warned us of this? Haven't we read his prayer for us all in the Gospel of John when he asked his father not to take us out of this world with all his troubles, but to keep us safe in him while we are in the world? When hardships come that he has already warned us about, it would be best for us to respond as Job did. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Most importantly, let us always fix our greatest attention on the greatest of blessings, salvation from sin through Jesus Christ, promised throughout the Bible. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his wounds we are healed. To paraphrase the Savior, what would it profit us if God gave us the whole world, 
but we lost our souls? What if he gave us everything we ever wanted in this world, but neglected our greatest need, the atoning sacrifice for our sins? The slight and momentary pleasures of this life would be horribly and eternally outweighed by the horrors of the coming judgment. But for us, the Lord has decreed the opposite. The apostle says, our light and momentary troubles in this world are not worthy to be compared with the joys that await us. The joys brought us by the blood of Jesus Christ. What a high price he paid to make you a child of God. On that account, value this gift more highly than any other. Pray for other blessings, yes, and be thankful when God decrees that you should enjoy them. But whatever he decrees that you suffer for a while, or he decrees that you enjoy life for a while, fix your eyes on the blessing that will never be taken away from you, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. We continue with the prayers. Lord God, we confess our many sins to you. All too often we have felt that you owed us the blessings of this world and have held them as more important than the bless, promised blessings of the world to come. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your unfailing love. For the sake of your Son, who was rejected by his own people for not being the type of Messiah they wanted, forgive us for sometimes following in their footsteps. According to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions. Give us the grace to set our hearts not on the treasures of this world, but on the spiritual treasures which are hidden above in Christ. Forgive us our sins, O Lord, and through your Son make us worthy to stand in your courts. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thy is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Lord God, all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works come from you. Give to us, your servants, that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments. Defend us also from the fear of our enemies, that we may live in peace and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.
Oh. 